0: This winter I've been preaching through a sermon series that I've entitled Revival. And uh, this series basically came out of a conviction that started way back in the beginning of 2021 where God was truly working on my heart for prayer and revival and just showing me the gap between what he had available for me and for our church and where I and we currently were, right? I mean, if you ever stop to think about the, the promises that God has for us and what he could do through us if we were truly just devoted to him, and then you look at where we are, right? And all the distractions and all the things that we give ourselves to instead of to him. It's embarrassing to, at times. It's, it's, it's shameful to see how much God has for us and how little that we take advantage of that, how little we access that. And so my prayer as we go through this series is that God truly would stir up revival, that he truly would bridge that gap by his Holy Spirit to bring us to a place where we are seeking him with our whole heart individually and as a church, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. How's the slides? Are they working? So earlier in this series, I had mentioned what Richard Lovelace called in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, the two preconditions of revival. As he looked throughout history at wherever revival broke out and great moves of God, he said there were kind of two preconditions, two factors that you saw often. One was an increased awareness of the holiness of God. God's transcendence, God's perfection, that God is not like us, that God is sovereign over everything, and that in light of him, number two, the depth of our sin, as we see the gap between who God is and where we are and what we deserve, those are the two preconditions that truly lead to revival. As we understand our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion against God, how how far short we have fallen of God's holy standard, and I've been trying to encourage you throughout this series to, to, as weird as it may sound, to truly look at the depth of your sin, right? To look and not look away, not minimize, not blame shift, not find ways of saying, well, this is because of him or her, and it's not a big deal, but truly to take to heart the depth of our sin before a holy God. It's where revival comes from. As we see the holiness of God, the depth of our sin, And then look at what God did in Jesus Christ to bridge that gap for us. So if nothing else, you could pray those two prayers. Lord, give me an awareness of your holiness and a deeper awareness of the depth of my sin. And so I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. I was led kind of to this, feeling like this is Jesus' portrait of what it looks like. The man, the woman who has had a heart that's revived by God, who is living for God. It's a very challenging Set of verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and they all build upon each other, as I've said every week. And this morning, we're going to be in verse 7, which is this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So what is mercy? What does it look like to be merciful, to show mercy to people? I would define it as this, mercy is compassion towards someone experiencing the consequences of sin, plus action to relieve suffering. There's kind of two elements to mercy. There's a compassionate attitude, taking pity on someone who's experiencing hardship, whether it's spiritual hardship due to an offense against you, maybe, or whether it's just material, physical hardship. It's having a heart of compassion towards someone and then being moved to actually relieve that suffering. That's mercy. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who have compassion towards those who are experiencing the consequences of sin and who are moved to relieve that suffering. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And what this tells me when we talk about revival is that true revival is going to be accompanied not just a church that is you know, on fire for God, experiencing times of worship and prayer, but also a church that is sent out into the world, right? A true revival should impact the community and the world, Because it should result in Christians who move out into the world to relieve suffering. Who move out in compassion to meet needs. And I want this morning to look through two parables that Jesus taught that bring to light mercy. Because, as I said, mercy can be on the spiritual element. There's a spiritual side of mercy where we have compassion on those who've sinned against us. What the Bible calls forgiveness. And then there's also a physical aspect of mercy having compassion on those who are suffering. And so I want to look at two parables that Jesus taught. One is the parable of the unforgiving servant, and the other is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable, if you're unfamiliar with what a parable is, this is one definition that I got from John MacArthur. A parable is an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. It's Jesus' favorite way of teaching. It's an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. And so let me look first at Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It's a story about, about showing mercy to those who have offended us. So here we go. And Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So in Jesus' day, there was a popular belief that seven was the limit for forgiveness, you know? Kind of keep track of how many times someone has sinned against you. And at seven, well, that's it. You're done. No more forgiveness. And Jesus tells him that's not the way it is with God. He says 70 times seven or or 77 times. In other words, stop counting. You don't count how many times you have to forgive someone. You just keep on forgiving someone. And then to illustrate it, he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Stop right there. So he begins by telling a story of a king who had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. And if you did the math, 10,000 talents in today's uh, money would be about $9.6 billion. Okay, So Jesus is intentionally using an extravagant, an exorbitant amount of money to make a point here. There's a guy who owed the king $9.6 billion, right? Huge amount he's gotten into debt here. He continues by saying this. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. I'm sure the crowd is kind of laughing at that one. After all, who's going to be able to pay back a debt of $9.6 billion? The servant is not only foolish, he's stupid as well. But the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So Jesus begins by showing a king who is full of compassion and mercy. Remember how I defined mercy? Put that that verse up there. I'm sorry, the definition up there again if you can. Mercy is compassion towards someone experiencing the consequences of sin plus action to relieve suffering. So the king here is an example of someone having mercy on his servant. The servant has grossly mismanaged $9.6 billion of the king's money. And now he owes the king $9.6 billion. And he falls on his knees and he says, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But the king, as he looks at the consequences of this man's sin, he has mercy on him. He forgives his debt and he lets him go. Now, it's important to note that just because he canceled the debt doesn't mean the money goes away. What happens, basically, it's the king's money, right? It's all the king's money. This guy has embezzled or or squandered $9.6 billion of it. And so for the king to say, I forgive you, means that who pays down the debt? The king. That means it's the king who is out $9.6 billion. And it's a great analogy picture that Jesus gives here of what happens when someone sins against us. When someone offends us or sins against us, it's like there's a debt that is created. And someone has to pay, right? We even use that language today. Someone needs to pay. It's either going to be the one who offended, the one who mismanaged the debt, or we're going to have to pay it down ourselves. But someone is going to have to pay. When there is a sin, when there is offense, there's a debt that's created, and somebody has to pay. And forgiveness is essentially saying, I'm going to choose to pay it down myself. Because you have two choices. Either you make the other person pay, and maybe over time you feel like, okay, the debt's been paid. But in the process, what's it done to you? It's twisted you. It made you more of a vengeful person, more of a bitter person. Or you can choose to pay it down yourself. And it's going to be painful because you're the one who's got to pay down a debt that you didn't create, but over time you will be free. Forgiveness, next slide, is choosing to bear the cost yourself and to not punish your offender, but rather to treat them with love and leave the judgment to God. That's forgiveness. A debt's been created, and instead of making them pay by slandering them, by yelling at them, by injuring them, by destroying the reputation, by ignoring them. I'm going to choose to pay down the debt myself and leave the judgment to God. Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, he shared what he called the four promises of forgiveness, which are these. I will not dwell on this incident. In other words, I'm not going to keep rehashing the past and bringing it up. I'm not going to bring up this incident and use it against you. Like 1 Corinthians 13:5, where Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs. I will not talk to others about this incident. I'm not going to keep telling everyone about this. To destroy your reputation. And I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to treat you with kindness. It's the four promises of forgiveness. And again, it's paying down the debt yourself. And it feels like death to do it. But in the end, it leads to rebirth, to resurrection. That's forgiveness. That's mercy. Choosing to pay down the debt yourself. Now, again, let me just clarify from Ken Sandy's book what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning what someone has done, right? Forgiveness is not saying, hey, it's okay. It's saying what you did is not okay, but I'm choosing to forgive you and not hold it against you. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Sometimes you need to remember so that you don't let it happen again. Forgiveness does not mean that you don't confront sin. Because the end goal is restoration of the person, reconciliation, and sometimes you need to confront someone when they sin against you, not just treat it like it's no big deal. Forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences. Sometimes you can forgive someone, but maybe they still need to go to jail for what they have done. Maybe they still need to face consequences for their actions. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. If someone's offended against you, it doesn't mean you need to get back together with them just because you forgive them. It doesn't mean that you need to get back into a business with a business partner because they've, you know, done something against you. It's not the same as reconciliation. And lastly, forgiveness is a process. It doesn't typically happen all at once. Maybe today all you can do is decide that you don't want to kill someone, and that's step one in the process of forgiveness is to decide that you're not going to kill them. It's a process. It doesn't happen all in once. So let me continue with the story, okay? Now that we know that we have this king who has forgiven this great debt that this servant owned, owed, verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about three months wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So Jesus tells this story where the servant has been forgiven an exorbitant amount of money that he could never pay back by this merciful king and then that same servant goes out and finds another servant who owes him about 3 months worth of wages. And that servant says the same thing, be patient with me and I'll pay it back, but instead of being patient or forgiving his debt, it says he chokes him and throws him into debtors prison. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Strong words at the end there. Jesus uses this. Remember, this began with Peter asking, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Jesus says, you don't count. You keep forgiving. Why? Because you need to take into account the debt that you've been forgiven by God. And you need to put into perspective the offense that someone else has done to you against how you have treated a holy God. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you truly understood the depth of your sin, it's like $9.6 billion of debt before a holy God. And he has forgiven you again and again and again. His mercy is new every morning. His grace is unending. And so in the words of this king, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants? Shouldn't you have forgiven his debt just as I forgave your debt? We don't count. We don't hold it against people because we know what we've been forgiven by God. We know the debt that's been erased by his death for us how every day we come to him and every day he forgives us. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who when they see the consequences of sin in other people, do not punish them, do not destroy them, but are moved with compassion and pity to relieve their suffering because they know that they serve a God who is moved with compassion and mercy to forgive them, to relieve their suffering. Romans 5, 6 through 10, Paul said this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. That's how God demonstrates his love. When we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were enemies of God, that is when he died for us. That is when he showed us mercy. And so when we find ourselves in positions where there are others who are ungodly towards us, who are enemies, who have sinned against us, it gives us the opportunity to extend mercy the way that God has shown mercy to us. The gospel, the good news, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for us. That's the mercy of God, never treating us as our sins deserved. And we have been freed now. And the more you understand this, the more that you will be a person who is merciful towards others, who is compassionate towards others, even when they sin against you, that you'll be able to see them with eyes of compassion like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they've done. I shared this quote last week from Martin Lloyd-Jones about meekness, or two weeks ago when we talked about meekness. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. You understand how these build on each other. When that's your attitude about yourself, you can't, you just, you're just amazed that God can think of you as well as he does, or that anyone can think of you, of you as well as they do. Then it helps to be compassionate. That helps you to be compassionate and merciful towards others. So that's the spiritual element of mercy. That's the spiritual side of mercy. Having forgiveness towards those who've offended us. But what about compassion? On those who are suffering, what about the Good Samaritan in Luke ten twenty five to 37? Jesus tells this parable, let me begin in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it begins with this expert in the law. It's not a lawyer. It's a theologian who's asking him, testing Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, to enter heaven? And Jesus responds with a question. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus, as he likes to do, turns, he answers a question with a question. Well, how do you read it? What do you think you need to do to inherit eternal life? Is well. I got to love God with all my heart, and I got to love my neighbors myself. And Jesus says, "Great, do that, and you'll live." But then it says, "This man wants to justify himself. He wants to be able to know. He know, wants to know he cleared the bar of righteousness, right?" So who's my neighbor? Because in those days they believed your neighbor was your fellow Israelite. So he, he's hoping Jesus is going to say, "Just love your fellow Israelite." But Jesus, of course, does not give him that answer. He responds by telling him this parable. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So this man was going down what was known as the Way of Blood. Here's a picture of the Way of Blood from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles running downhill, through barren mountains, rough terrain, caves, boulders. Lots of robbers loved to stay there and attack people as they went through. So Jesus intentionally sets it here in this very dangerous place. And this man is robbed, beaten, and left half dead. This Israelite man is lying in the street, and a priest walks by, and then a Levite. Both the priests and the Levites were servants of God, serving in the temple. They certainly know the law of God. They knew that To follow God meant to be merciful. It meant to love your neighbor as yourself. But even though they knew in their head what the right thing was, they both passed on by. And I can think of three reasons why they might have passed on by. The first maybe is contamination. Maybe they believed that the man was dead, and if they came in contact with a dead body, they'd have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem to be cleansed. So they didn't want to touch this man. Maybe it was just safety. Maybe they thought it was a trap. You know, if I stop and help this person, the robbers who got him are going to get me too. Or maybe it was just entanglement. You know what? It's just too complicated. I don't want to get involved. And so whatever the reason was, they walk on by. And then Jesus continues and says this in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, of course, Jesus, trying to make a point here about who is my neighbor, he makes the hero of the story a hated Samaritan. Of course, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. Someone the Israelites would have looked down upon. That he stops to take care of the Israelite. Not only does he stop to take care of him, he bandages his wounds, probably tearing up his own garments. He uses his own wine as an antiseptic, his own oil as a balm. He puts the injured man on his own donkey, which means that he probably had to walk alongside the donkey the rest of the way. He brings the man to an inn. He gives him two silver coins, which would have been enough for two months' room and board. And he says, I'll come back to make sure if there's anything else that I give it to you and take care of him. It's a great story, right? Jesus, we're familiar with it, I'm sure, but Jesus uses this to make a point about who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love your neighbor, right? Right? It means to be willing to inconvenience yourself, to risk your own safety, and to bear the cost for anyone who is in need, even your enemy. What does it mean to love my neighbor? It means being willing to inconvenience myself, risk my own safety, and bear the cost for anyone who is in need, even my enemy. That's mercy. This example of someone having mercy on someone the Samaritan, not walking on by, but being willing to inconvenience himself, risk his own safety, and bear the cost, even for his enemy. As it says in 1 John three sixteen to 18 this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So again, the expert in the law asks him, who is my neighbor? And he's hoping that Jesus will give him a bar that he can clear. Your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. Just be good to them. But instead, Jesus, as he always does, raises the bar so high that it's just beyond his ability, beyond our ability. It's your neighbor's any person in need. Whose need you can see, whose need you can meet, even your enemy. And that love means sacrificial action, interrupting your schedule, spending your money, risking your safety and reputation, even for a stranger. What is mercy? Mercy, again, it's compassion towards someone experiencing the consequences of sin, plus an action to relieve suffering. That's mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. On the one hand, there's the spiritual element. It means those who have sinned against us being willing to forgive them as we've been forgiven. On the other hand, it's also the physical element, being willing to meet the needs of those who are suffering. One of the main reasons that Christianity grew from this tiny sect in the Roman Empire to something that became the largest religion in the world was exactly this, the mercy of Christians. Julian, the last pagan Roman emperor, He said this as he was irritated by the spread of Christianity. He said, Do not do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their poor but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own lack aid from us. When we talk about revival, we're not just talking about like getting hyped, right? You know, I'm not just talking about like, yeah, I'm so excited, right? I'm excited for Christ. I'm, I'm you know that's that's not what we're talking about when we talk about revival. There is going to be an element of emotional just passion and hunger and thirst for righteousness for God, but it's also a transformed heart that le- lends itself to a church that is actively merciful. This was revival in the midst of a Roman Empire that was bent on destroying Christians. You think you have it bad today. it's nothing compared to when Christians were burned at the stake and fed to the lions. And Christianity grew and spread under that kind of persecution. And one of the main reasons was the mercy that they showed, their heart for mercy and compassion towards those who were in need. That they were not apathetic, they did not just walk on by, but they were willing to sacrifice and serve and give to meet needs. That's the kind of revival that is... Doesn't come easily. It comes with sacrifice. But that's what we're called to. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I know that if you're anything like me, you struggle with this very much, right? Most of us are not by nature merciful people, compassionate people. Many of us by nature are more self centered, and we want to preserve what we have and save what we have for ourselves, our own time, our own money, our own reputation, all of it, we want to protect it at all costs. And often we, in our pride and arrogance, can look down on those who are suffering. Instead of having hearts of compassion and mercy, we can look down on others, thinking that it's their fault that they're in the position they're in. This is why... As I've said from the beginning, all the Beatitudes build on each other and it begins with poverty of spirit. If you are like me in that way, that self-centered way, go back again to the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt before God and that everything good in their lives is an undeserved gift from God, that you would not even be able to breathe apart from God's grace and power in your life. Everything that is good in your life is a gift from God. The fact that I can stand up here and speak and formulate thoughts and have health, have a family, have a home, any of that, it is not deserved. It is not something I earned. It is a gift from God. And so for me to look down on anyone else shows that I've completely forgotten that I am poor in spirit. I am spiritually bankrupt before God and that everything that is good in my life is an undeserved gift of God's grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who recognize that their sin has had a terrible impact on their lives, the lives of others, and even caused the Son of God, the innocent Son of God, to have to die. Blessed are those who mourn, who look their sin full in the face and recognize the damage that it has done. Blessed are the meek. Those who, in light of their sin and what they've done, bend their neck bend the knee to God, submit themselves to him because he knows better than we do and are humble towards each other and gentle towards each other. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who see the gap between where they are and where God is, the promises he has and what we've taken advantage of and hunger and thirst for more of God in their lives, to know him more, to be more like him, to bring him more honor and glory, to reflect him more. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who know how merciful God has been to them. Who show mercy, who forgive sins, who meet needs, who are willing to sacrifice their comfort for the good of others. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that we are not always merciful and compassionate. That when people offend us, we want vengeance. We want to hurt them. We want to injure them. And when we see needs, when we see people suffering, we are not always moved with compassion but we walk on by like the Levite, and like the priest. Forgive us our sins, Lord. and Transform our hearts. Give us a fresh vision of your mercy towards us as displayed at the cross. That Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. He paid down the debt himself. Instead of making us pay the debt, he paid it down, bearing the, the punishment, the wrath, so that we might go free. Lord, as we worship you, as we spend time in your presence, transform our hearts, that we might be humbled before you, that we might show mercy to others as you have been merciful to us. Bring revival, Lord, that our church might be a church that is outward-looking, eager to meet needs, eager to relieve suffering. We confess that we have not been that way, but we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make us that way, Lord, that you would bring revival. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.